Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Ian Morgan Trump. Who's that? So, so glad you asked. Ian is a best-selling author, psychotherapist, Enneagram teacher, and host of the popular podcast, Typology, which has nearly 15 million downloads. He's written a bunch of books, including the national bestseller, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. I think that book has sold over a million copies, which is a ton of books. Known for his transparency, humor, and depth of insight into the inner workings of the human heart and mind, Ian uses the Enneagram personality typing system as a tool to help leaders cultivate self-awareness and emotional wisdom. He's a sought-after speaker, thinker, and advisor to a growing roster of clients such as the Discovery Channel, Michael Hyatt Company, Warner Brothers Music, amongst others. He and his wife, Anne, have three children and live in Nashville. And that last part is fun for me because he's kind of my neighbor. He lives about 15 or 20 minutes away from me, so he's one of those wise mentor-type folks I have the good fortune of running into at coffee shops in Nashville. But first... Today's episode is brought to you by me. That's right. This episode is brought to you by me. Now, we're going to need to do a little theater of the mind right now because what I'm about to describe is wicked visual. But this is an audio medium, so I I think you see the challenge I'm facing. So a few weeks ago, my friend William Warren, who is the conquering creative on Instagram, if you want to check him out, and he's also the person who illustrated my book, Do Over, sent me an email that blew me away. He essentially took my book, Soundtracks, which is about overthinking and building a winning mindset, and turned it into two amazing looking posters. Each one is, it's essentially a step-by-step, beautiful walkthrough of the core concepts in the book. It's the kind of thing that you can hang up by your computer, hang up somewhere in your garage, hang up somewhere you're going to see it as a reminder of, oh, okay, If I ever get stuck overthinking, here's the things I need to do. So here's the deal. During the whole month of September, whenever you buy a copy of Soundtracks, you'll get access to the digital downloads of both of these incredible posters. You won't have to choose. You don't have to choose. I'm going to give you both of them. You can get both of them so that you can use them on your journey to overcome overthinking. If you already bought the book, one, thank you. That's so kind of you. This is a great time to get a copy for a friend you think would love it. If you've never read it, this is a great opportunity to order a copy and get some dope wall art at the same time. This deal ends September 30th, so don't miss out. Order a copy of Soundtracks from wherever you like to buy books and then head over to acuff.me poster to enter the receipt number and get your poster downloads. That's acuff.me poster, A-C-U-F-F dot me slash poster. All right, let's, let's keep going with the episode. I, I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Ian, based on your expertise in the Enneagram, is it safe to say that the best number is seven and that it's weird <laughs> that other people don't wish they were a seven too? Can you, can you clarify that for listeners today right out of the gate? John, might I assume that you're an Enneagram seven and only a seven would open with that question? Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to take that as a yes. I'm going to um, interpret there's a lot going on between the lines, as they say. So I'm going to interpret that as a, as a yes. 
Yes. I, it, no, no question. Okay. That's what I thought. I was so looking forward to this. Um, Ian, love your work, have loved your work for years. Um, we both get to live here in Nashville. So I'm so excited you're here. So for somebody who's never even heard of the Enneagram, so maybe there's a listener that's like, I don't even know what that word means. There's a lot of personality systems out there or personality types. How would you describe it? And how would you say it's different from other personality systems? So the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system. And it teaches that there are nine basic personality types or styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to feel safe, uh, to cope, and to navigate the new world of relationships. Very importantly, each of those nine types has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type habitually and predictably acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment. I, I love that description. Habitually thinks, acts, and feels from moment to moment. I'll, I'll run through the types quickly. So there's nine types. Perfectionist, number one. Number two, the helper. Number three, the performer or achiever. Four, romantic individualist. Investigators, number five. Six is a loyalist. Seven is the enthusiast, which I am and started with this conversation. Number eight, the challenger. Number nine, the peacemaker. I'm a seven, but people often think that I'm a three because I'm driven, I'm ambitious. Is it common for people to go, okay, I hear the nine types, I kind of relate to this one, but I might actually be this one because people don't understand who they really are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's important, really important to remember that actually all of us contain all nine types. Mm. It's just that we're dominant in one of them, right? It's our default setting. It's the one that sounds more like us, describes us better than the other eight types. And what determines type is not the characteristic traits or behaviors. It's really the unconscious motivation that drives that type's behavior. Now, that answers your other question, which is what differentiates the Enneagram from other personality systems like Hogan or Colby or DISC or StrengthsFinder or MBTI, right? I've worked, mm -hmm. I listen, I, I like any instrument that helps people develop self-awareness. Why I like the Enneagram, why I, by the way, spend most of my professional career working in the corporate world is because the Enneagram doesn't just describe what you do, it describes why you do it. Those other systems do not, right? They're, they're trait systems. And I think uh, it's very difficult to really work to move your personality style into the highest expression of yourself unless you know why you do the things you do, not just what the things are that you do. Make sense? Totally. So would you say that that's one of the areas where people have kind of a eureka moment with the Enneagram is where they, they've tried a bunch of other things and then they, they discover some of the why um, behind that. And, you know, get, can you give me an example? So maybe, maybe I tend to lead toward investigator. I'm a five, I'm analytical, I'm, I'm private. You know what the words that might describe that what would be a why that I'd go, oh, okay, that's part of, you know, how I'm wired that way. What would a why be there? Okay, so fives are analytical. They tend to be detached, introverted. They're very, very private uh, with personal information. They're motivated by a need to gain knowledge, to conserve inner resources and energy, to avoid relying on others. That's the why 
Do you see that? Yep. And and all of that is in service to avoiding the perception or that they have to, to fend off feelings of inadequacy and ineptitude. Feelings of inadequacy and ineptitude. That's what they're trying to prevent is, is feeling mm-hmm. that way. Okay. Yes. And, and feeling depleted and drained in the relational sphere. So again, that's the why, right? It, and, and so once a five realizes it, it's like, oh, that's why I act, think, and feel the way that I do. Now I can begin to work on my personal issues so that I can show up for life in a much healthier and self-aware way, which is a very key term. And in the work world, you know, very, even more important in the business world is this whole concept of self-awareness, which is, the, of course, the great gift of the Enneagram. Self-awareness definitely comes into a lot of kind of goal-setting discussions that we have on the podcast, where I'll sometimes meet people that'll say, I've been trying to write a book for 10 years, and we might uncover they really don't even want to write a book. Like 10 years ago, somebody told them they should write a book. Maybe a parent thought that'd be good to write a book. Do you see people as they explore the Enneagram start to kind of shed labels that maybe they gave themselves as they live into who they are? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question for you that blows my mind, right? It's a question that I talk about in my, my upcoming book. What could you do if you weren't the person you think you are? Yeah, that's a good question. That is, that's a Trojan horse right? question because it's simple words, yeah. but it's not a simple question. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think a lot of times uh, people adopt or take on expectations of others that are inconsistent with who they truly are and what they really want. Right. Yeah. And once you know your own wiring, right, you, you can begin to make different freer choices about the things you're going to do and not do in your life. I mean, so much of this feels like there's a sense of freedom in it, a freedom to be the person I am, the free, like to not fight, to not have internal fights, to go, wow, what if I push in the same direction as who I am wants to push? Can that be intimidating at first? Because the reason I ask that is sometimes I'll say to somebody, okay, let's talk about your goals. What do you want? What do you desire? And that feels like it on the surface should be a really freeing question. I get to dream but they've, they've lost permission to do that or they feel they don't get to do that. Can some of this be intimidating at first to bump into who you are and it, it's like meeting a stranger that maybe you've always known but didn't have a relationship with? Very well put, that last line. I think absolutely. A friend of mine likes to say, if, you, if you're looking for flattery, don't play with the Enneagram. And this is another differentiator from those other systems. First of all, the Enneagram is going to tell you that what's best about you is what's worst about you, and what's worst about you is what's best about you. And you really begin the journey with the Enneagram looking at those dimensions of your personality, the way that you show up for life that are very unhealthy, unhelpful, that are self-defeating, self-sabotaging, that are misaligned, right, with who you are, your architecture. So this is, the again, the, the great gift of the wisdom of the Enneagram. When does your new book come out? Oh, not till December. Not till December. Okay. And uh, is it related? Give us a little more about that because you gave us one question to ask. So clearly there's some amazing things. But I, I guess my first question about that is, tell me a little about, about that book. And is this your first book since the last kind of smash yeah. success? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've been riding on the wave of the last book for a number of years and, and, yeah. and only because... I needed to just keep working that book for a while. 
Well, know, it's number uh, 541 on Amazon right now. Like right now, oh, I mean, like, really? yeah, like it's like, which is amazing years after a book is launched. So it, it has been a tremendous wave. 7,000 reviews. Like it's been such a successful book. Yeah. Well, I, I feel very fortunate uh, about it. You know, the new book explores the idea that all of us not only adopt a personality style as children, we also adopt a story or a narrative, right? In which we kind of inhabit uh, it's. And, and maybe the core question of the book would be, is the story that you tell yourself and others about who you are true, right? And yeah. I think that most people inhabit a story that isn't. If that's the case, then in the words of Mo Willems, if you, if you find yourself in the wrong story, leave. Yeah. As, fa- <laughs> as fast as you can, yeah. As, as fast, fast as you can. can, right? And so the Enneagram, this is where it feathers, the Enneagram actually, in my mind, is also describes nine stories, one of which people gravitate toward and adopt in childhood in order to make sense of the world and their experiences. That, that's powerful. That's, I, I love that idea. Was it intimidating for you to write a, a book after that last one? Like as a writer, as a fellow writer, was it a freeing process? Was it a, whoa, now I have to try to you know, have the success be as big as that one? Like, what was that creative process like for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all have, you know, we're writers, we work alone. It's, you know, all those neuroses pop up, all those insecurities that you thought you got over in seventh grade arise uh, again. And so, of course, I have anxieties uh, about it. But fortunately, I'm old enough, and I'd like to think I've done enough work on myself that I can say, you know what, it's going to be what it is. And, you know, to have the expectation that this book will do it as well as the last book, well, yeah, I hope it does. Chances are, it's hard to hit like that twice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's I a mean, grand slam. It's soft- grand slam. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's your sophomore record, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's hard to beat freshman year, you know? Exactly. So, we'll see. Did the success of that one catch you off guard? Like when the road back to you just, was it a, it blew up instantly? Was it a slow burn? Like, what was that process like? Well, I would say that it came out pretty quick, but actually it was a slow burn. It just kept rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. You know, we'll in not not too short a period of time hit a million units. And it 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 just blew my mind. I was like, wow. Now I will say I'm a very goal-oriented person too, you know? Yeah. And even though, you know, I'm a four on the Enneagram, trust me, I am plenty ambitious. And yeah. I set goals and I actually love marketing books. So yeah. I like metrics. I, I like to see yep. something grow. Uh, yeah. I'm motivated by it. And uh, I'm actually pretty good in sales. You know what I mean? So yeah. most authors, as you know, you not being one of them, they write a book and they're not very motivated to actually go out and work it. Right. Mm-hmm. They're like, I finished now. And it's like, you know, well, I didn't write a book not to sell it. So I'm a little bit like, I'm going to work this thing like a pony at a birthday party. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're not leaving until every kid gets a photo. Like every yeah. kid gets a photo. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always like, I start off in the beginning. It's like, you know, if a Boy Scout troop wants me to come speak, I'm done. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you say, it's a brand new podcast. It's never had an episode. I'd like to be your first guest. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, absolutely. I, I love that. I'm I'm curious. You're 60 years old now. That's correct, right? That's your, you're 60 years old now? Oh, did you have to say that? That's only wisdom. In, only in, yeah, I know. In age, yes. Well, so what's something you thought was true at 40 that you no longer believe? 
oh boy, something I thought was true at 40 that I no longer believe, huh? Or a new, or a new thought that you said, you know what, now I can see this differently. Something that you're, you know, you've come to grips with, or you've learned and gone, wow, now that I reflect back on that, this thing I thought was important wasn't, or vice versa. This thing I didn't think it was important is that, I mean, even selling books, like, I think that that can be part of the growing process of going, it's not just I write the book and then the publisher does the work. It's that if I want the book to reach as many people as possible, that's a whole second phase of the book's life. Right. Well, I mean, I think at, at 40, and this actually makes me sound like a type on the Enneagram that I'm not, but you know, I think at 40, I, I still believed that the world only valued people for what they accomplished, not for who they are inside. Mm-hmm. It took me a little while to realize that I really didn't need to hit a home run every single time or, or at all in, in order to be a person of value uh, who has a right to be in the world. I don't think my self-image or my self-esteem is tethered anymore to how much money do I make? How, how many people know who I am? How many people admire my achievements? Obviously, that is a very unhealthy way to move through the world. Yeah, and it's a popular way to move through the world. Oh. It's, it's easily scored. You know, there's a lot of yes. scorecards. The thing for me with public speaking, I had to learn that sometimes you're the guy carrying the chicken at the wedding. You're there, you're doing your thing, and you're going to do the things the best you can. But you also have to recognize there might be 50 other speakers. There's like it might be something, you know, they're launching a new program with the CEO and you want to, you know, versus, wow, like, look at me. How do I serve the audience and recognize that something? Yeah, I do my half hour and sometimes that's the half hour. If I tie my ego to that, the plane ride home is very different than if I go, I served the best I could serve, performed, I shared, I, you know, for me, that's been one of the changes. That's, that's interesting. What would you say are myths about the different types? So like, I would say the, like the challenger, I've heard people go, oh, they're an eight, they're a bully. And it's kind of like a shorthand that maybe is a myth. It's a nickname or like, I've heard people say, oh, she's a four, she's a crazy artist. And that becomes a like, kind of a shorthand, you know, going through the types that you go, people think it's this and that's a shorthand that's just not true or it's just not helpful. So here's the deal. First of all, those aren't types. Those are stereotypes. Uh, Big difference. Big difference. Yeah, it's a huge difference. You have to remember that within each type, there is an infinite number of expressions of that type, right? Uh, So, which explains why two people of the same type can look insanely different from each other, though they share the same unconscious motivation. Right. That's the key. And I would say that a lot of times, you know, people know enough about the Enneagram to be interesting at a cocktail party, but they really don't know it. They, they have a few very sort of very superficial, you know, understandings of each of the types. And they're, you know, they know enough to be dangerous, but not to be helpful. Right. OK. And so yeah. I run into that all the time because in all honesty, John, the Enneagram is easy to learn, but it's very hard to master. It's a, it's a very complicated system. And, but at the same time, if you know a little bit about it, it could be tremendously helpful. So you don't have to go all the way down the wormhole to benefit, right? But again, I'm always a little annoyed with people when they sort of throw around the stereotypes of each of those numbers. It's very unhelpful and not true. Yeah. Yep. And I heard you say that to Bart Millard on one of your episodes of your podcast that it's taken you 10 months, despite all your training, your expertise, it took a long time to say, okay, I'm not going to put some somebody in a box. I'm not going to put myself in a box. This is, a, you know, a system that has a lot of layers to it, which I think is a real gift to somebody who reads a blog post about Enneagram or takes, you know, a quick test and then goes, 
this is now who I am, or now I have to completely understand myself. I think it's really helpful to hear experts like you say, no, it's taken me a process. It's, it's been, you know, a work in progress over time. So I, this is just a selfish question. I'm a seven. My wife is a five. What did marriage advice would you give us? <laughs> She's exhausted. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. That might be the pull quote of the whole episode. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, you are very different people. Number one, three sevens and eights are the most aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. I feel Four's it. Five. I feel it. Right. Now, aggressive is don't take that in the negative sense. It really means very, very assertive. When when you want something, you might go and ask for it. And if you don't get it, you just go take it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try to make it seem like your idea. I'll do that. That's yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have a tremendous amount of energy, right? So a five is one of the withdrawing types, fours, fives, and nines, right? They, they withdraw. When you want something, you go get it. When she wants something, she goes inside and looks for it, right? That's a big difference. And like I bet you in social settings, you know, you come alive and she kind of steps back a little bit. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. let me give you an example of a marriage, a 7-5 marriage that I worked with once. For years, the wife who was a 7, husband 5, they would have arguments. She wanted to be the first to the party and the last to come home, Right. He wanted to be the last to arrive at the party and the first to go home. Okay. Yeah, those are different expectations. Right. And so while he's standing on the table, you know, holding a beer in the sky and, and you know, singing louder than everybody else. Right. He was like, uh, I, you know, small talk and having to, you know, it, you know, interact is just draining and depleting. You get energy from it. So eventually they just worked out a system. Once they learned the Enneagram, they bring two cars to parties. They just respect each other's, diff, you know, architectural differences, right? Yeah. Your wife, chances are, depending on what kind of five she is, finds too much time in the relational sphere depleting. And when it gets too draining, those, right, she has to withdraw and be alone and recharge. Uh, again, that's just one small thing about sevens and fives together. But it's, I'll say this, no tool in my mind, and I say this as a psychotherapist, I say this as a practitioner, no tool will help your marriage as well as the Enneagram will. I just don't know of any better tool, right? It's like, it, it is so eye-opening when you learn each other's types and, and, the, and like what motivates you, who you are, you, you just start to realize, I mean, I can't tell you how many people at workshops will come up to me and go, Enneagram saved my marriage. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I'm sure that they, you know, it impacts other areas of their life that it's kind of like everything else. Like when you let, you know, discipline begets discipline, like healing begets healing. Like it starts to heal other parts of your life that you might go, I guarantee people come up to you and go, it really helped me with my finances. And you go, I didn't even oh. write about finances that much because once you have the toolkit, you can go, how do I apply it to this part of my life? How do I apply it to this part of my life? Oh yeah. Yeah, like I said earlier, 98%, 99% of my work is in the corporate sphere, right? I, I, I lead corporate workshops. I speak at like you, at, you know, corporate plenary, you know, sort of speak speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and it saves people's jobs. I mean, I've just seen it tons of times. Uh, I've seen it adrenalized teams. Uh, I've seen it um, helps, you know, develop self-awareness among senior management so that their ability to deploy people in, in better ways is 
remarkable. And I would say, in addition to finances, John, that when it comes to goal setting and crushing goals, if you know your Enneagram type, you know its, it's strengths and, and uh, challenges when it comes to setting goals and accomplishing them. I think that's one of the big myths about goals is that there's a lot of very successful, very charismatic, motivational people that write from their type unknowingly. They go, and then they say, this is the way to do it. So they say, you got to get up at 3 a.m. and do 100 burpees. And then you flip a big car tire over a million times and you you eat egg whites. And this is how, if you want to do good, this is what you do. And then somebody with a completely different type goes, all that sounds terrible. Like I would hate all of that. Do you see people present solutions as a single type versus going, here's how it could apply to multiple types? Yes. Uh, you know, so for example, let, let's just, you know, what is self-awareness? Well, first of all, according to research, and I could direct you to the Cornell Business School's uh, research into self-awareness. We tend to think that success in business or in any occupation that we're in is grit, determination, uh, the ability to strategically plan, uh, et cetera. When in reality, this is a line from that Cornell study, the key predictor of success among leaders in business is Mm self-awareness. And and self-awareness is the, this is a short version of it, is understanding your personality, uh, how, how it affects other people in real time, it's the ability to uh, monitor and regulate the way that you act, think, and feel in a given moment. And also baking into your calculations, oh, wait a minute, not everyone sees the world the way that I do. Not, not everybody interacts with the world the way I do. How can I relate to this different type of person? And how can I help them become the most satisfied, productive person you know, both in their professional and personal spheres. I mean, that's just, you know, a fantastic gift. It's interesting you say that about leaders and self-awareness. I feel like in some leadership circles, maybe it's unhealthy cultures, the leader doesn't have to do the work of self-awareness because they get surrounded by yes people who tell them the things they want to hear. And the line I sometimes use is leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. And, and the reason I asked that, I just interviewed Greg Sankey, who's the uh, commissioner of the SEC. Um, brilliant, brilliant. Just negotiated a $3 billion deal with ESPN, just led kind of all the sports world through COVID. And he said that introspection, like leaders being able to have self-awareness, he meets leaders and he'll say, well, where are you introspective? And they'll go, I'm not, I don't have time for that. Do you oh. feel like, do you feel like there's actually some unhealthy cultures that prevent a leader from actually dealing with the things that are going to make them the best leader? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, that's oftentimes why I get called in. (laughs) Do you get called in by the people that want you to help the CEO sometimes? I have had, yes. I I worked at a fortune 500 company once and they actually brought me in to do a whole workshop so that the leader would develop enough self-awareness to realize that they were now in the wrong job. And needed to move to leading up. Uh, and they were, by the way, this person was a seven. and Which are um, awesome. They, we covered that at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Yeah, and yeah. though this person was, like many sevens, a tremendous entrepreneur, had started this company, had developed it into a huge thing. Year five, what do you think starts to happen? Well, their sevens are typically not good managers. No, they like, get bored of that. That's boring. Oh, yeah. So I went <laughs> eventually... 
I had a conversation, you know, consulting with the CEO and I said, you've done a great job starting this company. You're at year five. My recommendation is you sell it yeah. and go start something else or bring in a CEO, put it, put yourself on the board and uh, go start something else. Cause you, you, you are not designed for management and you're dying and they're dying. And now see, if you have that self-awareness, if you're like, you're a seven, you're like, Oh, I, I know that. Like my, my son-in-law, who's 25 years old, knows the Enneagram well. He started a beverage company uh, called Bora Bora about a year and a half ago. It's now in 1,600 stores, now starting in Walmart, 7-Eleven, and in, um, gosh, another, oh, Whole Foods, right? And he's killing it. He's absolutely killing it. Like this kid is my retirement plan, okay? Nice, nice. Right? And so, but he's a seven and he's already figured out what's the trajectory of my career in this thing based on who I am, hmm. right? Do you know what a gift that is to have that kind of insight at 25? Oh, no, that because I'm usually working with people who at 45 are unpacking like, wait a second, the last 10 years, I've done something I didn't really want to do because yeah. I thought it was right. the next rung on the ladder. So I just, I, I don't, this is not telling stuff, stories out of school because was, this is all told on my podcast. Yeah. Blake Mikoski, the founder of Tom's Shoes, is a seven on the Enneagram. And he just reached a point in the development of the company where he spent a couple of years as the CEO. It was not working out, right? It just, it wasn't working out. Um, why? Because he was really moving against the grain of his fundamental architecture, right? A seven is not going to become a three. You, you might be able to do that for a little while. You can white knuckle it. Yeah, I mean, and so what did he need to do? He, he really needed to go out and find a new thing because that's what seven, then, you know, that's what tiggers do, right? It's like, yeah. they go, they, they got to bounce to the next thing, right? Whereas a three would be fantastic. A would be fantastic. Well, a bunch of other types would be fantastic as, as a manager, right? Slow moving, taking an organization down the road, not so much a seven. No, not so much. That's so encouraging to hear for me personally as a seven. Um, I think, I think that's fantastic. I, this is more of a personal question. What are your hobbies? Like when you're not doing podcasts, when you're not releasing books, when you're not traveling around, what are the hobbies you like to get up into? Man, I have a bunch. So, you know, I used to be a songwriter. So I still do some writing, uh, but I, I probably, as I move through the house, I have guitars hung on the wall in, in my house, you know, a couple of guitars. So I'll just walk into, I'll just pull that thing down and start playing. You know, I still write. I have a, you know, I still do co-writing sessions with other writers. So that's one, I, you know, I'm, you know, I like personal training a couple of days a week. I like running, you know, mm -hmm. so that I do a lot of yoga, that, that stuff that really matters to me. Right. Mm -hmm. I have to say I'm an insanely curious person. So I, I do a lot of reading in, and I, I make a point out of doing cross disciplinary reading. So I like to read in other, in areas of expertise that on the surface, you would think that has nothing to do with what that guy does for a living. But that's not true because I'm always yeah. thinking, how do I collide things that I do with outside ideas that when you slam them together, you, you often come up with incredibly creative hybrid ideas that no one else yeah. has thought about. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, and it's like, oh, a revolutionary idea. Right. And you're like, mm, would never have done that if I hadn't read that book about, you know, let's say Buddhist psychology and business. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. It's like, who thought of that? that's kind of strange, but. 
there's so much interplay. There's, there's just things play well together. You know, I, uh, Dorothy Parker, the way she described creativity, it's my favorite definition is that creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. So the wildness is you fill your mind with all these different unrelated topics and you have the discipline to see the connection between them and share them in a, in a fresh way. By the way, can I just say one thing about that, John? Yeah, go for it. No other number on the Enneagram does that better than sevens. Oh, really? Because I, I love doing that. That's my favorite thing. And I, yeah, like collecting ideas and then seeing where they play together and going, this Dr. Dre lyric related to this story at Bose related yes. to the definition of empathy. Yes. Right. So what the seven does really well is they see patterns and connections between ideas, systems, concepts that other people simply do not see. It's like you're, you're, you have what's called a very high openness to experience scale. Right. Mm. And that's a very you're a great like a blue sky guy. Right. Like so you can get in front of a whiteboard with 10 people and everybody better put their seatbelts on because you have more ideas and connecting ideas and, you know, things that nobody else saw. Now, that comes with the downside. Right. And if you're self-aware, you'll know how do I um, do this in such a way that it's helpful and that so that the wheels don't come off the car. Right. It's like because, for example, you have all these ideas. Other personality types think those are plans. Oh, yeah. They're like going like, okay, well, what does he want us to do? And they're writing down, okay, well, the next thing we're doing is this. It's like, no, you were just like spinning ideas out, like just riffing, you know, and, and coming up with ideas. And then they'll be like, well, what is it? You know, two weeks later, they're like, well, we thought you wanted to do this. He's like, nah, I was just, I was just, you know, kind of. Well, that and then I'm, yeah, looking for stuff. I've realized I have to also limit that in other parts of the project. It's not helpful once you've made plans and you're marching towards something to do a mid-project riff that's probably not related to anything. Right. Just because yes. it's fun to riff. So I have to yes. go. Where yeah. is it? Like nobody wants a guitar solo at the beginning of the song. If you're like, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. We have a bridge. We have a chorus. Like we're gonna get to the guitar solo. This nine-minute right. riff right now, not, not right. cool. That's good seven self-awareness, right? And and so sevens uh, oftentimes don't have the patience to march down a field, and they also are so creative that they'll get two-thirds of the way down the field and go, I have another idea. And then they they kind of like, you know, look, it's shiny, and off they go, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and everyone else is like, wait a minute, you just departed from the plan. Yeah, that you're describing mo- most of my Tuesdays, um, I would say. There's a lot. <laughs> this is... This is very, uh, feels very Tuesday to me. Like, yeah, that's what I do. So last question, I always like to ask questions like this. You mentioned reading. What would you say, other than your books, um, are on your like most helpful Mount Rushmore? So if I, you know, I'm on it, this is a, all it takes is a goal podcast. If I was going to say, hey, here's the four books. I, you know, for me, I love Bird by Bird by Aunt Lamont. I think that's a great writing book. Uh, The Dip by Seth Godin, I think is great. Uh, War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. But you've got the, you know, Ian Mount Rushmore of helpful books for somebody who listens to a podcast, like all it takes is a goal. What would you put up there? This is a very unfair question. (laughs) Oh, because you have to, I mean, you can, okay, one, or you can do one or five. You don't have to, I don't want you to feel limited. And you can do the four most recent ones that have been moved, that have moved you. Oh, (laughs) Josh. Well, all right. 
let, let me just say this. Um, I think one of the things I tell leaders all the time, and this is going to sound very counterintuitive, but I can't tell you how much it's helped some leaders. I don't think enough leaders read fiction. Yeah. Uh, they're always reading books about, um, you know, being m- more productive. And I want them to do that. But I also want them to read books that will come in through the back door of their imagination rather than through the front door of their insight. <laughs> that's good, dude. Oh, that's so good. So good. Yeah. Okay, so give me a fiction. Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Oh, great. Great. I have it on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but apparently it's go. an important one. That's a great book. If nothing else, by the way, if you want to become a more articulate human being, read great fiction. I mean, you know, read the Russians, read Dostoevsky, read Tolstoy, read, I mean, you know, the ability to articulate your ideas will be greatly formed by, you know, your ability to communicate will be greatly enhanced by just reading great writers. You know, other books that I've liked recently, um, yeah, I've been reading books on addiction lately because I think it's such a huge deal, right? So, Russell Brand's book, Recovery, is a oh, tremendous yeah. book. He's tremendous fascinating. Book. He's oh, fascinating. And listen to, it on, listen to it on Audible. Okay. And so there's another example, right? You read a book. Like, I'm good at this, too, I will say. Like, I'll read a book like that, and I'll think, all right, now how does that apply in this sphere, right? I mean, that's how my new book came up. I read, a, I read books on narrative psychology, right? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and then you started to put the pieces together. Yeah. And it's like, and then you import it into your area of expertise and then everybody thinks you invented fire. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you brought right? fire from another mountain. You went to a volcano and said, Hey, here in the Valley, we don't have volcanoes, but I brought some fire. Right. And, and then what it does is it, it invigorates the system. The aperture widens on possibilities. By the way, did you read the book, the art of possibility? I don't, uh, no, I don't think I've read that one. Oh, 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 John. <laughs> oh, I know. Who knew? Who knew? Okay, so, so lacking. It is a book that will help you so much in business and in goal setting. It, it is written by the principal conductor of the Boston Symphony. Oh, okay. I'm listening. John, okay. John Williams? I, no, 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 no. It's a no, um, different guy. Please hold. I, I thought you were about the, to uh, say, not only did he do every Spielberg movie, but he also wrote a great book. Yeah, it's called The Art of Possibility, Transforming Professional and Personal Life. All right. Rosamond, Rosamond Stone Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R, and Benjamin Zander. Consider it read. Oh, my gosh. You got to call me and just tell me. You're welcome. It's Yeah, he's the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, I will 100% order that right after this. Right yeah. after this and so, you know, like, for example, when he talks about as a conductor, my job is to help and make possible um, great performances, not drawing attention to myself. My job is to help all these other people express themselves at the, at the, the highest level of their capabilities. And that's what you should be doing in business. So there's the slamming together of ideas, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, this metaphor, this idea, when used in in my professional setting, right? Everything else is like, oh, my self-understanding, who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing in life. Did you ever think you could learn that from the conductor of the Boston Orchestra? No, I would not. No, of course not. I would. If I made a list of a hundred people to learn that from, I don't think a conductor would be would be on the list. I mean, I would probably name ninety business leaders. Dude, it is amazing insight. 
right? It's like, okay, consider that one. You answered that question. You started off like you weren't going to have a single book and then you just kept building great recommendations. Say the one I'd add to the fiction, I just read Stephen King's Shining for the first time. He, I think he's got a career in him. Um, I think Stephen King's gonna, <laughs> I think he's, he's got, got a good, future. yeah, he does. He yeah. does. Um, by the way, his, I, book on, his book on writing is one of the finest books written on writing. I've read that one. I just had never actually read his stuff in The Shining. I was like, oh my gosh. And then um, Count of Monte Cristo. I tell anybody oh, yeah. who likes a single John Wick movie, every revenge movie you've ever seen takes its core from The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's 900, like nobody gets punched at the end of every chapter. So you're going to be a little disappointed if you go in with that expectation, but it's so well done. It's so long. It's so beautiful. So that one for me is one. So if you're a leader, let's say you're in business or whatever your, your, your world is like you're working in, if all you're reading is books inside of your silo, right? You are profoundly handicapping yourself. Right. Because yeah. all you're doing is massaging your pre-existing biases. Oh, come on. That's so good. That's right. So good. I mean, yeah. And so you're not integrating by being an interdisciplinary person like Bill Gates. Go read Bill Gates's, you know, reading list. This guy's a fiction reader all over the place. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, he's always right. So all to say, how's this? Leaders who are not curious are probably not great leaders. I mean, half of the military people I know, like people at the highest levels of the military, you can't believe their reading lists, right? I mean, it's, they don't just read about, you know, war. Their interdisciplinary reading is extraordinary. Well, and you don't get innovation without curiosity. So if you're not a curious leader, there's no, you're definitely not leading innovation. Um, And Mm -hmm. the other thing about massaging your pre-existing biases you're also reading the exact same things every other competitor is reading. Mm-hmm. So like yes. you're you're all going to come to like the similar conclusion, similar products, similar leadership versus going, here's something that no one else saw that I'm going to connect to this thing we do. So I, I think it's a huge benefit. Well, Ian, this has been a blast. I love getting to run into you sometimes in Nashville. We live fairly close to each other. You actually, I got to see you and your wife maybe a couple months ago at a, at a coffee shop, which was which is always fun. Um, where can people find out more about you? I, I've mentioned the book, um, The Road Back to You, brilliant. You've uh, got an amazing podcast, Typology, You know, 15 million downloads, got a new book coming out. But if somebody goes, okay, I like this conversation. I want to know more about Ian. Where would they go? Well, on my socials, Ian Morgan Cron, I-A-N-M-O-R-G-A-N-C-R-O-N. Uh, you can go to my website, ianmorgancron.com. You'll find my IEQ9 Enneagram personality assessment, right? Which is a good first stop on the train of understanding who you are through the lens of the Enneagram. Uh, there are, you know, available courses there, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, that you can, you can find out about what I'm doing and what kinds of resources I have available for people. Perfect. And I, I would say... Try that out. Get a sense of the Enneagram. Um, and if you want a really easy intro into, okay, I might be this type. I think listening to an episode where you interview somebody of that type is such a 3D experience. It feels like, mm-hmm. you know, a full immersive uh, ride at Disney. We are like, oh, wait a second. I see all the colors. That's a really fun way to ease into going, okay, I might be this type 
Um, I might be curious about this. I just love how that fast forwards understanding of the Enneagram. I think your podcast does an amazing job of that. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Ian, thanks for joining us today. Have a great rest of your day, man. Okay. Cheers, John. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Ian today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. When your podcast is new, I mean, I'm in the first year, that's new. When you have a new podcast, reviews are super important. So please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is that the kids are saying these days and please write a review. I'll see you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.